Amen. Father, we pray that this morning um, that if anyone's here right now and they're lost, we pray that you would find them, that you'd let them know your love, let them know that you see them, that you care for them, that you died for them, and that salvation is found in no other name except Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those here that know you, I pray that we would not overcomplicate our faith beyond what we just sang about. That the bottom line is, without you, we'd be lost. <laughs> That's it. We thank you that you're enough, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being good. Please have your way this morning and speak to our hearts in the time that we have together. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Once again, if you've got your Bibles, grab them, open them up, go somewhere, because we'll be pretty much everywhere. Um, working our way through our doctrinal statement right now over the summer, um, way more with each one of these, way more than can be said in a single Sunday morning. Uh, last week was God the Father, week before that the Trinity, and today it's Jesus. <laughs> but every Sunday is about Jesus, amen? Every Sunday is about Jesus. Um, I'll read our doctrinal statement here in a second, and uh, and the two primary things I want to focus on this morning are, are two different categories that Christ came to fulfill. One that I want to talk about the prophecies that he fulfilled, and then I want to talk about the offices that he fulfills, and I'll explain what I mean by that as we, as we go through. Uh, and, and it's important. Theology matters. Um, theology, uh, as I said, I believe the first week when we talked about uh, the Trinity and kind of intro of this whole series that we're doing over the summer, just walking through a doctrinal statement. Um, all theology needs to end in doxology. That's just a, a rhyming way to say that everything that we learn, all doctrine, it needs to end in praise. It needs to end in worship. That's what it's about. It's not just about head knowledge or information. Uh, it's about fuel for our hearts that makes us sing. And that makes us not just sing, but offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship, that all of life is about worship. And the more we understand who he is, his glory and his goodness, the more that we want to do that continually, is just offer ourselves to him because it's what, it's what we were created to do. But just even before we, we get into all that, I just, um, I don't know, not that I... I don't think would miss this as we, as we go through it, and not that these two things are mutually exclusive, but before we get into the depths of some of this doctrine, I just want to say very simply that Jesus Christ is my Savior. Um, He saved me. He saved me. I didn't save myself. I didn't just make a lot of mistakes and then, which I did, but I didn't just make a lot of mistakes or 
commit a lot of sin and then I just figured it out. But he saved me. I just want to say that. Amen? He saved me. I'm thankful. Thankful for that. Let's read here at the top. If you got one of these papers, uh, the bold at the top. This is our kind of formal doctrinal statement in Mercy Hill. And of course, <laughs> with all these, but with this especially, there's just so much more that could be said. But here we go. We believe Jesus is Lord. Because we believe he is Lord, we also believe this next sentence, that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. We now have, we now have the joy of believing him, following him, obeying him, and being used by him however he sees fit. So it means that he's Lord. He gets to make the decisions. He became man without ceasing to be God, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We believe he lived a life of obedience, a perfect life of obedience to God the Father, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. The reason old Pontius Pilate gets his name mentioned in there is because Pontius Pilate is somebody that um, is recognized as, someone, as a historical figure who really existed in real time space history. Uh, I mean, just as Jesus did as well, but he was crucified 2,000 years ago. Really happened. It's not a fairy tale. It's not just a myth that we mentally assent to. His, his life is based on actual events in real-time space history. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, but he rose from the dead on the third day. Amen. He ascended into heaven and is now, right now, today, this morning, seated at the right hand of God um, as our high priest, where he is our intercessor, our representative and advocate, and he will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. He said he was going to come the first time the scriptures testified to this, and this is where I want to start about the, the prophecies that he fulfilled, is in Luke chapter 24, and I believe this is actually on the back of your paper, yeah, the, the bottom one, Luke chapter 24. Um, it's just a, a few snippets from Luke, but verses 25 through 27, and then also verses 44 through 45, verses 25, verses 25 through 27, he's speaking with this two, these two guys uh, on the road to Emmaus. We don't know the one guy's name. The other guy's name was Cleopas. What a name. Um, but uh, they're walking along after Jesus has been crucified, but now he's been raised from the dead, but they don't know this yet, and Jesus is walking with them, and he begins to speak to them, and he says... O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then he said, and then Luke says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. All of the Old Testament, all of the Bible, it's about Jesus. 
It's all about him. And this verse isn't in here, but later on it, it says when they realize that it's Jesus that they're talking to and then he kind of disappears from their sight, they say that their hearts were burning within them as he spoke to them about himself from the scriptures. And that's what I pray for every week here as we open God's word that we would leave here with burning hearts. Not heartburn, but, 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 burning, but burning hearts. Passionately in love with Jesus because it's all about him. And it always has been throughout, throughout time. Same thing happens then. Jesus appears uh, in this upper room to, to several of the disciples. And then verse 44, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Throughout the, uh, the Gospels, especially like in Mark, Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, or just a few places, all in a row, where Jesus predicts to the disciples, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me, they're going to crucify me, and then on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And several places, <laughs> the disciples are like, we, what does this mean? It means that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, and then on the third day, he's going to rise again. That's what it means. And they're like, what? He's like, here's what it means. I'm going to be arrested, and then I'm going to rise again. He said it was going to happen, and then it, it happened. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That again, the Old Testament, it's about Jesus. It's about him. And we'll talk more about that. Lorraine Botner, who's a good theologian, he says this. Uh, this is a very important quote, very important insight. Don't know if you've ever thought about this. Speaking of Jesus, he says, In all the history of the world, Jesus emerges as the only expected person. No one was looking for such a person as Julius Caesar or Napoleon or Washington or Lincoln to appear at the time and place that they did appear. No other person has had his course foretold or his work laid out for him centuries before he was born. But the coming of the Messiah had been predicted for centuries. In fact, the first promise of his coming was given to Adam and Eve soon after their fall into sin. That was in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And as time went on, various details concerning his person and work were revealed through the prophets. And at the time Jesus was born, there was a general expectation through the Jewish world that the Messiah was soon to appear. And we're not going to have time to get into all this today, but if you study the book of Daniel, you can pretty much pinpoint down to the very week, if not the day, when the Messiah was going to appear. And that's when Jesus came. Even the manner of his birth and the town in which it would occur were clearly indicated from the scriptures. I love that little phrase, Jesus emerges throughout history as the only expected person. Every single new day, we give testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ is real. Today is June, actually I need to check, June 19th, 2022. The year 2022, we would say, if we're speaking it real formally, 2022 AD. AD stands for Anno Domini. It's Latin for the year of our Lord. That even our calendar year is built around the birth of Jesus. He really came. He really was born of a virgin. He really lived a sinless, perfect life. Not just of not doing sin, but also doing righteousness. As God required of him. 
And he really did die under Pontius Pilate. And then on the third day, and even, his, even secular historians, many of them that don't believe but they're honest, they say that he was real and that he really died. And then something happened. We know what that was. It's the resurrection. But very quickly, just this is just going to be a big high-level flyover of some of the prophecies. There are, there are over 300 in the Old Testament in regards to Jesus, not just some of the specific things that he would do in this, uh, in this life while he was here in real time, space history, on the earth, um, uh, but also ways in which he fulfilled the feasts and different things throughout the Old Testament. But here, here's, just, here's just a few of them. One I already mentioned is that um, right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. This is a, a, a somewhat of a veiled reference to the fact that the Messiah was going to come and stomp the head of the serpent. Um, Paul picks up on this in Galatians chapter 4. It says, but when the fullness of time had come in God's perfect timing, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The seed of the woman came to crush the head of the serpent. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it was prophesied that he would be born of a virgin. Um, he was the son of God. In Psalm chapter 2, it says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, in Matthew chapter 3, it says, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Not only was he the son of God, um, but according to the flesh, he was the son of Abraham. He was also uh, the son of Jacob. He came from the tribe of Judah. Again, all these are individual prophecies kind of pointing to where the Messiah would come from. Um, it was prophesied that he would be preceded by a messenger saying, declaring, make straight the way of the Lord. That, of course, was John the Baptist. It was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, it was prophesied that his ministry would begin in Galilee. In Isaiah chapter 9, he says, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 4, he speaks of this as, as Jesus fulfilling this. It says, now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali. Uh, from that time for forward, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was prophesied that he would do many miracles. In Isaiah chapter 35, and the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing for joy. Uh, it was prophesied that he would, he would teach in parables, which he did again and again. It was prophesied that he would enter into the temple, which he did. Um, it was prophesied that he was going to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. How much more specific do you want to get? In Zechariah chapter 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, humble, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course, at the triumphal entry, Jesus comes riding and fulfilling this prophecy. 
It was prophesied that he would be a stone of stumbling to the Jews. He was, his resurrection was even prophesied in the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 16. It says, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That verse is quoted many times throughout the book of Acts. The, the apostles pointing to it is proof that even the resurrection itself was prophesied in the Old Testament. <coughs> um, his ascension was prophesied in Psalm chapter 68, verse 18. Uh, it was prophesied that he would be seated at the right hand of God. It was prophesied that he would be betrayed by a friend. And now these next su- several prophecies that I'm going to list to you, um, it was, uh, th- these, most of these were fulfilled in one day. Um, but in Psalm 41, 9, it says, Even my familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is, of course, a reference to Judas Iscariot and at the Last Supper. Uh, that he dipped his hand in the dish with him and then he went out. Um, It was prophesied that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. Uh, It was prophesied that uh, the blood money uh, would be thrown back into the temple in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13. Of course, Judas did this after he's filled with guilt and realizing what he'd done. Goes and throws the money back into the temple. Um, It was prophesied that a potter's field would be bought with that blood money. It was prophesied that uh, he would be forsaken by his disciples in Zechariah 13, verse 17. It says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In Mark chapter 14, it says, then they all forsook him and they fled. Uh, It was prophesied that he would be accused by false witnesses. It was prophesied that he would be silent before his accusers. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. It was prophesied that he would be wounded and bruised. It was prophesied that he would be smitten and spit upon. And again, I'm just, I don't have time to read all the verses, but this is all true. If you want to fact check me, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> it was prophesied that he would be mocked. It was uh, prophesied um, that uh, he would be pierced on a cross. Psalm 109, my knees are weak through fasting and my flesh is feeble from a lack of fatness. Uh, I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Of course, Psalm 22, which we looked at about a year ago, very specific. Um, says, they pierced my hands and my feet. He, he prophesied the way in which the way in which he would die. It was prophesied that he would be crucified with thieves because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and he was crucified, one on his left and one on his right. It was prophesied that he would make intercession for his persecutors. In Isaiah 53, 12, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And as he hung there on the cross, Luke records that he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It was prophesied that he would be rejected by his own people. Uh, it was prophesied that they would hate him without cause. It was prophesied that, that those that loved him uh, would stand far off. Psalm 38, 11, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my relatives stand far off. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 49, it says, but all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. All these are specific details about his life, but especially about his death. 
that people would shake their hands at him, that people would stare at him, that, um, that they would cast lots for his garments. In Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And of course, the soldiers actually did this as Jesus hung on the cross. Again, showing that God is in total control of all of this, and this, this was always God's plan, and that Jesus is God. Um, I mean, I don't know, how many more do you want me to give you? <laughs> There's a lot. We're not even close to all of them. It was prophesied that his side would be pierced. Zechariah 12, 10, they will look on me whom they have pierced. And of course, in John chapter 19, verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. It was prophesied that darkness would come over the land. That's exactly what happened at noon as Jesus hung on the cross the bright sun of the Middle East was darkened. Amos chapter 8, verse 9, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. And that's exactly what Matthew records happened. And then also it was prophesied that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, which is what happened when Joseph of Arimathea came and took his body. Now, so I know that was a lot, um, but I'm going somewhere with all this. And these, these, again, this is in the Bible for a reason. It's given to, to give us hope. I've shared this little study that was done with you before, but I think it's been several years, and it was good. I, I was reminded of it this past week as I was studying this, and I, I'm going to share it with you again. Um, it just always makes me smile uh, after reading it and studying it again, but there was a, a study that was done by a guy named Peter Stoner back in 1952. He wrote a book called Science Speaks, and I got this from uh, Josh McDowell shares this in his book called New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, um, a book primarily on apologetics, why we can trust the Bible and how we can know that the resurrection and Jesus were real. But Peter Stoner, um, in, in this study that he did, uh, this is a study that was uh, certified to be true by the American Scientific Affiliation uh, and their members. Um, and the mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability, which are thoroughly sound. And, uh, and this guy testifying about Professor Stoner says, Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. And here was um, uh, Peter Stoner's kind of thesis and scientific probability experiment that he did, is he took just eight of those prophecies, okay? He took just eight of those prophecies, and he figured out what the chances are of one person being able to fulfill those prophecies that were made uh, several hundred years and some thousands of years before that person ever came. And they came up with the fact that if one person, the chances of one person being able to fulfill just eight of those prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I don't even know, if you're not math people like I am, let me just try to lay this out. That's the chances of one in, and then it's a really big number, a one with 17 zeros behind it, okay? So more than a million or a billion, okay? It's, it's a lot. A one with 17, the chances of one person being able to fill just eight prophecies. And you're like, well, how, how many is that? Well, that's as many as if you would take silver dollars, uh, if you would take that many silver dollars, it would cover the entire state of Texas um, two feet deep. So that's a lot, right? Amen? It's a lot. 
So the chances of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies would be the same as you cover the entire state of Texas in silver dollars two feet deep. You take one of those silver dollars, you mark it with a red X, you throw it into the pile, you stir up the whole pile, you walk through blindfolded, and then what are the chances that you're going to pick up that one silver dollar? That's the chances of one man being able to fulfill just eight of those prophecies Jesus fulfilled over 300. What's the point? The point is, he is God. He is God. Now even with scientific, if you want to call it proof or whatever, um, it's not where our faith ultimately lies. It lies in the word of God, and that God has never lied, but again, it also points to the fact that the Bible is true. Obviously, this is not just a, a book written by men. It's a book ultimately written by God. And even with, you know, scientific statistics, mathematical probabilities and such, um, people still deny that Jesus is Lord. And the reason for that is that they want to be Lord of their own life. And they do not want to repent and turn to this one who can save their souls. Um, but that's why he came. And I share all that because sometimes we think that God uh, hasn't really made it clear <laughs> or that he's just kind of whispered. If you can hear me, maybe you can come to know me. God is screaming from heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Those are just a few of the prophecies that he fulfilled. Let me talk a little bit about the offices that he fulfilled. What do I mean by offices? I mean the office of prophet, priest, and king. Jump down on the front of this worksheet, and again, I'm just only have time to do a little bit of this. But um, from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, it's about in the middle. It says, this office of mediator between God and man is proper, is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. It may not be in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. This number and order of offices, and when he says office there, he's talking about the office of prophet, priest, and king, and I'm going to explain what those are and why they matter. This number and order of offices is necessary, for in respect to our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office, in and in respect of our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God, and in respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. And so I just want to talk a little bit about these offices. And, and here's why this matters, because this is, these are categories, offices that the Bible gives us. But these offices directly correspond to meeting our greatest need. Okay, So sometimes people 
today, and I understand what they're trying to do, but we don't have to do it because the, the Bible gives us the, the imagery and the pictures that we need um, to understand salvation. But sometimes people will refer to Jesus as like our superhero. The Bible doesn't refer to him as a superhero. It refers to him as our prophet, our priest, and our king. Sometimes, and this one's a little bit more uh, disrespectful, if not blasphemous, but you know, uh, I remember maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, there was a bunch of t-shirts going around that said, Jesus is my homeboy. It's not your homeboy. It's your prophet, priest, and king. Um, and so we try to make him relatable, but we should use the language that the Bible uses to try to understand him, if that, if that, makes, if that makes sense, um, because that's why they're, why they're given to us. But first of all, in regards to him fulfilling the office of the prophet, okay, the prophet. A prophet is someone who spoke the words of God, and you have all these kind of lowercase p prophets in the Old Testament, but Jesus is the capital P, prophet, okay? And so Moses was actually considered a prophet, and here, here's the primary scripture that I want us to look at. is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Now, this is one of those prophecies that I didn't even mention, but this is a prophecy about, about the coming Messiah. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, speaking of Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. So again, very quickly, story of Israel, a nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt, parts the Red Sea, destroys the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, takes them to Mount Sinai. God comes down on Mount Sinai in all of his glory. There's clouds and thick darkness, lightning, thunder, fire shooting out of this cloud. Super freaky because the glory of God had come down uh, to this sinful world to dwell with, with, with sinful people. Moses goes up as a type of uh, uh, mediator, but also a prophet here. Moses goes up, and he gets the words of God, and he comes back down with the words of God written on stone tablets. And be, and, but you guys know the story. As soon as he comes down already, they're already dancing around a golden calf that they, that they had made. Um, and so the people were super freaked out by it, and that's what he says there. Uh, he's quoting the people in verse 16 in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and the people were saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord uh, my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. In other words, this is too scary for us. And God says, I know, but I want you to see who I am. And then again, reading back into the prophecy, we know who this is about. It's about Jesus that one day he was going to come and send his son. Not scary and fire on the mountain, but born as a little baby in a manger. There's no excuse for us not to draw near to him. Um, the point is this, is that Jesus, as the, better, as the better prophet that was to come, fulfills this office of speaking to us the words of God. Because Jesus is God. And when he speaks, he can't not speak the word of God. But the parallel would be this, if I could just say this succinctly. Moses was the mediator of God's covenant, went up on a mountain to meet with God, and came back down with the words of God written on tablets of stone. Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant, 
And he came down, not from a mountain, but from heaven, not just with the word of God, um, but as the very word of God. And not to write on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. This is the heart of the new covenant. That this new covenant that God came to establish was that he was going to write the law of God, not outwardly on tablets of stone. That it would no longer just be a command from without, but it was now going to be a desire from within. This is how one of the ways you can know that you're saved, is that you trust in Jesus. And he puts his law on your heart. And you want to serve him. We do that imperfectly. But we have this desire. We have new affections to serve him that we once did not have before because he's written his law on our heart. Jesus is the very word of God. A prophet and more than a prophet. Of course, John chapter 1 makes this most clear. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Later on in John chapter 1 he actually draws this parallel between Jesus and Moses. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. Jesus came to show us the Father and to give us his word, but even more than that, as his word. Here's, have you ever, just very practically, like what, like what does this mean? Do you, do you understand what God has done? Have, have you ever tried to pour out your heart to somebody with your words, explaining to them what you mean, and the person just doesn't get it? Have you ever had that? That's frustrating. Just, you're pouring out, you're, you're trying to explain, maybe you're even trying to express your love or your care to them. And it just seems to, they seem to not get it. Do you understand what God has done for us in sending his son, who is the word? Okay, I have words, ideas in my brain right now that hopefully I'm getting from this book. Then they come up here, and then I'm trying to get them out. I'm trying to express them to you. Jesus is the word of God. He is the expression of God. It's trying to express his heart to us. That he loves us, and that he cares for us, that he hates sin, but he's got the answer for it if we will just trust him. And he has poured out, God has poured out his heart to us through the word of his son. And we seem to just be at times just indifferent to it. It's like us pouring out our heart to somebody. And going, yeah, okay. God is so good to send his son to express his heart to us. But not only is he a prophet, but he's a priest. Where the prophet would speak the words of God, and Jesus is the very word of God, the priests acted as a sort of uh, intermediary, okay? and their role was to uh, sanctify the people, 
um, and stand in the gap for the people so that, and offer sacrifices for the people so that they could freely approach God in worship. Okay, so the prophet comes to speak the words of God, to communicate the word of God to us. The priest comes to offer sacrifice so that we could actually draw near. Because God just doesn't want to stand at a distance and just tell us what he says. He wants to come near to us. But there is a problem. He is holy and we are sinful. And sin cannot stand in the holiness of his presence. And so God created a sacrificial system that he deemed to be just where sacrifices could be made and a substitute could be offered and the death of the lamb, the death of a substitute would be the death that we deserve so that we could come near because the lamb had been slain. Now, Hebrews picks up a lot on this. And again, we're, we're going here. I understand that I'm jumping into another really big idea, but try to hang with me. Hebrews chapter 7 speaks of this high priesthood of Jesus, okay? And so you had the, uh, these two different kind of lineages of priesthood. One was very well known. The other one was a little bit cryptic, but it's, it was super important. One was the, was the Levitical priesthood, okay? These are descendants of Levi. Uh, Levi was like the great-grandfather of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. Uh, they come, and those, their um, family line were the ones who were to offer sacrifices in the Old Testament for the sins of the people. Uh, and again, they would offer these sacrifices so that they could draw near with, um, with clear, clean hearts and come freely to draw near to God and to worship him because that's what we're created to do. Now in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this idea of the priesthood, but he says Jesus is not a priest in the order of Levi or in the order of Aaron, but he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, okay? Now, if you remember this, in Genesis chapter 14, we looked at this back at the beginning of the year when we were in Genesis chapter 14. There's a few verses to this kind of uh, um, cryptic character in the Old Testament named Melchizedek, okay? And in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20, speaking of Abraham, it says, after his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. We don't know anything about Melchizedek before this, and we don't know much afterwards. But he was priest of God Most High, and he came out and he blessed Abram and said, uh, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this. And he says, uh, speaking of Jesus, he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, and you're like, well, why couldn't Jesus be a priest forever in, after the order of the Levites or the, the order of Aaron? Well, he's going to answer that question. He goes on, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18. He says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we, listen, through which we draw near to God. Okay, so remember, this is what the priest would do, that we could draw near to God with confidence because he'd offer a sacrifice. Verse 20, it says, And it was not without an oath, for those, whom, for, for those who formerly became priests were made such with an oath. But this, was one, but this one was made a priest with an oath by whom it has been said, The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest 
forever. And that's a quote from Psalm 110. So Psalm 110 is written several hundred years after this thing with Melchizedek happened in the Old Testament, but God is still setting it up for Jesus to come. He set up this other priesthood where somebody can come in the likeness of Melchizedek uh, and come and offer sacrifices so that we can draw near to God continually. Hang with me, okay? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 says, this makes Jesus, here's the point, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, why is it better? Verse 23, the former priests, speaking of the Levitical priests, remember I just said Jesus couldn't come in the order of the, of the, Levitical, of the Levitical priests? The, the Levitical priests had a problem, okay? Here was their problem. They kept dying. Now, so listen to what the author of Hebrews says. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. So you'd get a good high priest, he's offering sacrifice for the people, he's like, and, he, and he would you know, preach as he's doing this, you know, come, you can draw near to God, I'm offering the sacrifice on your behalf. But that guy was a sinner too, and eventually he'd die. And those sacrifices weren't perfect either. But, speaking of Jesus, he holds his priesthood, listen, permanently, because he continues forever. And you're like, okay, well that's cool, but is that really necessary, or does that really matter, does that make a big difference? It makes a massive difference. Because listen, He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, I know that was a lot. I hope you tracked with that and you're understanding what I'm saying. Jesus is a better high priest who doesn't come from the order of the Levites, but from the order of Melchizedek, who we don't know where he really came from and, and, and if he ever uh, died, it doesn't really say. And so it's this other priesthood that was set up that Jesus could come in the order of, offer these sacrifices to God. And this is what he now does today, even at the right hand of God right now today. He lives forever to make intercession for us, to intercede on our behalf, because we continue to sin. But he is going to see us through to the end, or as the author of Hebrews says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Are you drawing near to God this morning through Jesus, his son? Because if you are, you can draw near with confidence. You can draw near with hope. Um... Thank you guys. Many of you, my, you guys know my grandma passed away this past week. My mom's mom, Diane's mom, who attend here. Two other sisters, Linda and Diane as well. Um, thank you. She was a sweet lady. She was a sweet lady. Um, I keep saying to people, you know, it, it's bittersweet, but there's a lot of sweet. There's a lot of sweet. There really is. And... Uh, I, I the, 10, 12 years ago, I um, popped into her house, and you know, you don't, you, you give a courtesy knock at grandma's house, but then you just go in, like you don't wait for her to open the door. So I gave a little courtesy knock, and then I opened it up, and I don't know, if, whenever, whenever she would come to our houses growing up too, she would open the door, she would just kind of knock, and then she would come in, and she'd go, yoo-hoo, always. 
So when I would go to her, I would just give the knock, crack the door and go, yoo-hoo, and here, here I come. And I walked in, and she, I just happened to stop in at this moment, and there she sat in the very middle of her couch with her Bible open on her lap inside her little Bible cover that she had with all her highlighters and stuff like that. And I could tell that she had been a little bit teary-eyed, and I didn't, you know, I felt kind of bad for interrupting, you know. I was like, hey, Grandma, how are you doing today? And she goes, she goes, I'm just, she goes, I'm fasting for you grandkids today. And, uh, yeah, it's very beautiful, I'll never forget it, but, but do you understand, my, my grandma, just as much as she could as a grandma, as a sinner, like the rest of us, she was interceding on behalf of her family. But listen, I'm not thankful for my grandma, but I'm here this morning to lift up Jesus. Do you understand that as beautiful as that is what my grandma did, Jesus is always interceding for you. Always. He doesn't stop. In a couple weeks, we'll get into um, the doctrine of assurance, the perseverance of the saints. And that's a term that's used a lot. The perseverance of the saints. Historically, that's a term that's been used. That all those who are truly saved will persevere to the end. But the perseverance of the saints is rooted in the permanent priesthood of Christ. That's why we persevere. Because Christ does not cease to intercede for us. It's absolutely beautiful. Very quickly, one more office. Not just that he was prophet, priest, but that he was king. The role of the king in the Old Testament was to rule with justice and to subdue the enemies of God. First king that comes on the scene in the Old Testament is Saul. Saul is not really a great king. He looks good. He's head and shoulders taller than anybody else in Israel. Real handsome guy. Would have been on like, you know, the cover of a magazine or something like that. Really tall and handsome, that guy. But he doesn't rule well. He doesn't rule with justice. He's not obedient. And he can never really deal with the Philistines, who are the enemies of God. David, of course, comes on the scene. And God testifies of David after, he, after Saul was disobedient. He says, I have sought out a man for myself, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. In other words, God was looking for somebody to, to do his will. And David was that man, although obviously far from perfect, if you know the story of David and Bathsheba. But David, of course, comes on the scene, and David finally deals with the Philistines, the enemies of God that Saul could never deal with because he was a better, a better king. Um, and, of course, you guys know the famous story of, of David and Goliath. Goliath was the champion of the Philistines, and he comes, you know, talking, talking trash, talking smack, and everybody's scared and uh, even Saul himself, but David comes on the scene and like, Who's, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? And you know the story, he goes out there, the stones and the sling, and he takes him down and chops off his head to boot. That's what a king should do. Subdue the enemies of God. Jesus, without question, came as a king. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom 
of heaven is at hand. In his triumphal entry, as I read a little bit about earlier, where he comes riding in on the donkey into Jerusalem, uh, the people are saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. A few days later, when he stands before Pontius Pilate, it says, So Pilate entered his headquarters and again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What, what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is, who is of the truth listens to my voice, that Jesus came very much as a kingdom. But if the role of a king is to subdue the enemies of God, why was Jesus not fighting against Pilate or against Herod or against Caesar? Yet he was a king, the best king. What enemy did he come to defeat? What Goliath did he come to take down? The answer is, he came to take down the enemy of sin of sin and death. That the Goliath that Jesus came to kill as the better David wasn't out here somewhere. It wasn't Pilate, it wasn't Herod, it wasn't the Romans, it wasn't Caesar. He came and he laid down his life as a good king, also as a priest, offering the sacrifice of himself as a spotless lamb to take down the enemy of our soul, which is sin and death. And that's really good news because the greatest Goliath that we face isn't out here somewhere. And this is where it's, you know, I, I, it's, it's easy to get disheartened at times, even within the church, because you hear so many motivational speeches. Be like David, take your stone, Put it in your sling or, you know, start doing this and take down the giant that stands in front of you. Folks, Jesus is the better David. We were all like Saul and the 40,000 Israelite army who were scared to death of Goliath and didn't know how to deal with him. But Jesus came and said, I don't think so. I'll deal with it. And he took him down. So he's the better prophet, he's the better priest, he's the better king. Worship team, you can come up. And we'll close. I know that that was a lot. Um, and again, it's kind of, there's a lot that could be said about each one of those things that we talked about this morning. But as we wrap up here, just a couple questions. One, what are you going to do with Jesus? What, what are you going to do with him? He wasn't just a man. He was the only expected person in history. Um, all of the Old Testament speaks to his coming. What are you going to do with it? Are you just going to acknowledge it, mentally ascend to it, and go, okay, well, that's some neat facts, whatever? Or are you going to bow the knee? Are you going to trust him as your savior? This is why he came. Secondly, for those of you that 
know him as your savior? Do you wake up every day hungry for a word from his word, knowing that he's the better prophet that came to reveal God to us? And I think if we were being honest in regards to that question, do you wake up every day hungry for a word from God's word? No, we don't every day, but we should. Um, And the point, again, is that God has gone to great lengths to communicate his heart to us. And therefore, um, it's okay to believe, and that we should believe, uh, that God wants to speak to us from his word. He wants his word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Let me ask you this. Would the people who know you best describe you as being confident that God loves you and that he hears your prayers? Are you confident? If you're not confident that God loves you, and if you're not confident that he hears your prayers, then here's the issue, I bet. I bet your eyes aren't on your high priest who continually lives to make intercession for you, but your eyes are probably on yourself. Your eyes are probably on your own performance and not his. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1.28, him being Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And do you believe that Jesus is your king, working to subdue every enemy in your life? How many of you saw some toppled trees this past week? Anybody? Never in my life have I seen so many toppled trees in one week. Some of them, you know, wherever the tree fell, that was its weakest point, right? Some of them, the roots remained, but they kind of got sheared off or snapped off higher up. Others, even though they were really big and they looked really good, they were toppled over by the roots. Where do you have your roots this morning? Are they in Christ? Are they upon the rock that will not fall? You can be secure in him if you know Jesus as your Savior. Father, thanks for today. Lord, we love you. We pray, God, that you would help us to worship you as you deserve, which is to give you everything and not just a little bit. So please help us to do that. Show us the areas of our life where we hold back, where we don't trust you, where we doubt your goodness. And Father, I pray that all of our life would be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you as our spiritual act of worship. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can stand with me.